I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Welcome back to C-SPAN. We're still waiting for the Congressional Subcommittee to convene, but I can see Chairman Lindley has finally made it to the podium. Let's listen in. Uh, good morning, gentlemen. After last month's highly successful panel on the Access to Birth Control Act, I'm looking forward to similarly smooth sailing on this one. On that note, I'd like to officially call to order the Congressional Subcommittee on whether Deborah Mandel should buy the coral purse to wear with her yellow pumps. It looks like we have three witnesses to hear from today. Bishop O'Hanahan. That's right. Hello. Rabbi Lieberman. Shalom. And uh, Dr. William Samuels. Good morning. Okay, let's start with Bishop O'Hanahan. Honorable Chairman, I vote no. I've seen the purse, and while I've never carried one myself, it looks rather large and unwieldy. Uh, And according to evidence presented to me, she's never had a good sense of balance on her, so she can't handle that purse. Excellent. One no vote. Uh, Rabbi Lieberman. Yes, thank you, Chairman Lindley. I'm frankly shocked that Ms. Perryman is even considering purchasing a leather purse, as the Torah clearly states that the golden calf was made by Aaron to satisfy the Israelites during Moses' absence and is therefore idolatry as it describes a physical body to God. Plus, I'm no expert, but she looks like a winter to me, and the purse obviously, obviously falls into the spring palette. So, uh, not so much. That's uh, two no votes there. So, uh, finally, uh, Dr. William Samuels. Yeah, I have a statement from Miss Mandel that I'd like to read to you all. <clears throat> I'm just kidding. I'm not, not going to read it. <laughs> you got me. You got me. That was funny. That was funny. I was on like, what? I know, right? Uh, no, no, uh, no. I'm not going to read it. And, and no, I vote no on the purse. It's, I just hate the color. That's unanimous no on the purse then. So uh, next up on the docket, uh, one Marjorie Reeves of Portland, Oregon, is asking to attend some sort of entertainment event with uh, music and things. Alone? What is it? Oh, this is a definite no. It's, it's... committee to see if I can host tonight. Tonight, Zine Maven, Martha Grover, author Patrick DeWitt, and music from Michael Hurley. That's tonight on Livewire Radio. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Courtney Hommeister. And you also have comedy from Faces for Radio Theater to look forward to. Poet Scott Poole with What I Learned Tonight, wherein Scott sits in our audience and in just one hour, the time it took T.S. Eliot to separate his jellical cats from his regular ones, he writes a poem that encompasses all the lessons he's learned during the show, and of course music from our house band, Ralph Huntley and the Mutton Chops. We've got a great snippet to look forward to from Martha Grover's book, One More for the People. 
And we've got a conversation with Patrick DeWitt about his darkly funny tale of two henchmen for hire. And speaking of hiring henchmen, let's talk about Rush Limbaugh, shall we? As we sort of referenced at the beginning of the show, we all know that recently there has been a lot of discussion and attempted legislation around faith-based organizations and government-subsidized contraceptive coverage for women. And if you haven't heard this story, it's, you're going to love this. Apparently, Rush Limbaugh called Sandra Fluke, a Georgetown law student, a slut and a prostitute for her testimony to Congress about her need for contraceptive coverage. And this is even better. He went on to say that as long as his tax money is paying for her to have sex, that she should just videotape it so he can at least watch it and get his money's worth. Yeah, right? Um, so as you're all clawing your eyes out at the thought of Rush Limbaugh doing anything remotely sexual, I would just like to say that whatever side you stand angrily on in this debate, we can all recognize that his comments were at the very least bad manners and at most litigation worthy. Now, we know because he was stopped with an illegal prescription of it at the Palm Beach airport in 2006 that Rush Limbaugh takes Viagra. Again, take an eye-clawing moment if you need to. I'll wait. And because we know that he wasn't married to his fourth wife until June of 2010, remember that was the wedding where Elton John was infamously paid a million dollars to serenade them? Maybe he changed the lyrics to Candle in the Wind to goodbye self-respect, though I never knew you at all. A million dollars is a lot of money. Anyway, so he didn't get married till 2010, so we know he was single in 2006 when he was caught with said Viagra. So as long as we're calling other adults sluts and things for trying to get access to birth control at a Jesuit university, let's look at what the Catholic Church says about a single dude taking Viagra. <laughs> Reverend Francis J. Hoffman, the executive director of a Catholic talk radio network, says the following. The morality of the use of any medicine depends on the intention. Assuming that the Viagra has only one purpose, to facilitate the marital act, then it can be taken lawfully only by married people who are open to life. Aw, snap! <laughs> Rush, you have just been indirectly called out by a Catholic talk show radio counterpart! What? That has got to smart because you listen to a lot of Catholic talk radio, I'm sure. <laughs> anyway, he goes on to say, if, if people are not married and are, are not open to life, then it would be morally impermissible to take Viagra. Oh, snap! Wait a minute. So if all this is true, why weren't male students or faculty at Georgetown asked to prove they were married before getting a Viagra prescription filled? It seems like a simple enough thing to check, just see what box they checked before their name. It was either the Mr. Box or the, oh, the Mr. Box. That is not gonna work. That's not gonna work. You know what? Here's the solution. Just ask them if the goal of the sex they're planning to have is procreation or pleasure. And if they say procreation, then hand them their government-subsidized Catholic Church-approved Viagra. Problem solved. And in a way that isn't at all invasive to a man's right to personal privacy. And Rush... Because you're married now, you can come pick yours up too, you big skank. <laughs> Just for the love of God, don't make a sex tape. Our musical guest tonight is one of the last great Ramblin' songwriters. He released his first record aptly titled First Songs in 1964, and he's released 23 more since then. He currently has three more in the works, including At Home with Drifting Wood for Mississippi Records, which will contain some of his earliest recordings. Over the course of his career, he's been called a genius, a madman, a folky weirdo, a yarn spinner, and a man with angels floating behind him. Please welcome Michael Hurley to Livewire.
Welcome to the show, Michael. It's good to be here. I wanted to talk to you um, about, you've, you've been making music for almost 50 years now, um, and your music has always had uh, humor in it. Over the course of your career, did people have trouble categorizing you because of that? Because it seemed like early on, folk was pretty serious. Yeah, yeah. It was hard for me to crack the uh, market back in the day. Yeah. People would say, uh, well, he plays really good, but what the hell is it? <laughs> <laughs> I like that song a lot because I enjoy eating. Yeah, so do Quite I. Quite a bit. <laughs> yeah. Now, um, it's one of my big pursuits. You know? Yes, exactly. Exactly. It's just a hobby for me. Just respect my hobbies. Yep. Um, so your debut album, First Songs, was released in 1964. So uh, what, what would you say is the best thing that's happened to folk music since you began your career? I think they let women start making so songs. <laughs> <laughs> it was a long, gradual uh, transition, to, but now the, there are lots of women out there writing songs and performing. Yeah, beautiful and, female folk singers. In the 60s, it was kind of a, a man's world. I think uh, Joni Mitchell was the first one who became popular who wrote her own songs. Mm -hmm. You reissued 100 copies of your album, Blue Navigator, on 8-track. True, yeah. On an 8-track tape. So what was the reasoning behind doing that on 8-track? Well, um, I, I'm sort of a fan of 8-tracks, you know. Mm -hmm. And I, I collect them, I find them in thrift stores. Then I, I find the A-track players, and I fix the players, and I, I fix the uh, cartridges if they don't work. And it just became a, sort of a hobby with me. So people got to realize that. A lot of people um, had A-tracks to get rid of. They didn't know what to do with them. They just put them all in a big box and put them on my doorstep. I still got a few left. And, <laughs> people want them? <laughs> And, you were, were, and your next record that's coming up is actually a record that is outtakes of one of your, of your recordings from the, from the mid-60s, right? Yeah. The, the next release I have, which is going to be on, from Mississippi Records, it's called um, Back Home with Drifting Woods. That's right. me. I'm Drifting Woods. Is that you? Yeah. <laughs> that's your pseudonym? One of them. <laughs> I won't ask what your other ones are. Well, it's been a pleasure having you, and we'll see you again later on in the show. Yeah. We'll Thanks so much for joining us. Michael Hurley, everybody. Music Tonight is brought to you by Dave's Killer Bread and the Bread of the Week, Good Seed. With 13 grams of whole grain and 4 grams of fiber per slice, it's seeding a better future for your mouth. Dave's Killer Bread, making the world a better place, one loaf of bread at a time. You're listening to Livewire, the radio variety show that didn't understand why there were dinosaurs in Tree of Life either. Coming up... Harrowing tales of dating from Martha Grover, cowboy assassins from Patrick DeWitt, poet Scott Poole, and more from Michael Hurley. We'll be right back.
Girl Scout cookie season. But there's a bit of a dark cloud over it this year. Groups like the Family Research Council and Concerned Women for America have accused the Girl Scouts of, quote, pushing their radical feminist agenda and promoting premarital sex, lesbianism, and paganism, end quote. We don't know for certain if those are their goals, but we did take a look at some of their new cookies, and we present them now to you so you can make up your own mind. Dosey, don't objectify me. L word lemonades. Hand mirror to the lady parts, zippity doodahs. Get your laws off my snickerdoodles. Condoms. Tag along? You tag along, jerk. Thank you, Barry Munch, for the glass ceiling. Middle lady fingers. Oatmeal raisin. Why are you so focused on whether or not we're thin mints? And finally, Samoans have been exploited by white culture ever since Hawaii was annexed in 1898. These have been new Girl Scout cookies for a new Girl Scout agenda. Martha Grover has been publishing her popular zine, Somnambulist, for eight years. Now she's published a book, which is largely a collection of stories from those first eight years called One More for the People. The book was listed as one of the Portland Mercury's best books of 2011. In it, she writes candidly about dealing with life-threatening illness and growing up in a trailer with six siblings. Tonight, she'll be sharing with you the equally harrowing experience of dating in the Northwest. Please welcome Martha Grover to Livewire. This piece is called Rotisseries. Lisa and I end up at Chopsticks to sing karaoke. We stay until they kick us out. We ride our bikes home and stumble into my apartment. We turn off the lights. From my futon, I tell her that I don't have the spins, I have the slowly rotatings. <laughs> You're like a chicken, she calls back. What? You're like a hot dog. Yeah, I laugh. I don't have the spins, I have the rotisseries. In the morning, I stumble down to the coffee shop to write. The barista with the neck tattoo tells me I look grumpy. I'm hungover, I say. When I leave, I tell him to take it easy, and he says, see you around, man. I hate it when boys call me man. Boy number one. I have stress fractures in my ankles, but I don't know it yet. I think I have tendinitis. I'm dating someone who's ashamed of his hairy back, yet criticizes my abundant pubic hair. I limp around the grocery store where I work in the cheese department. At 8 a.m., I roll my cart loaded with feta, fresh mozzarella, and sliced gouda out to the stand-up case to stock the morning cheese. I lean on the cart like it's a walker. The lanky, perishable grocery assistant manager is stocking the commodity cheese. He looks up and asks me why I'm limping. I have tendinitis, I say. He gives me a sympathetic smile. I've been studying energy work, he says. He's in school for holistic medicine and massage. Our bodies are like batteries. They have positive and negative poles. For example, if I touched you here, he indicates my ankle, and then you touched me here, he indicates his neck, his shoulder, his head, his hair. It would create a circuit of positive and negative energy flowing through our bodies. I don't say anything. <laughs> Boy number two. He's shorter than me, much shorter. He pulls on a cigarette and doesn't inhale. I think I have cancer, he says. I have cancer too, I think. I lose my virginity to him. Boy number three, he approaches me in the courtyard of the community college and asks me to draw my picture in exchange for a cigarette. I agree. Hey, that looks just like you, I say when he's done. Yeah, I know, that's all I can draw. Everything just ends up looking like a drawing of myself. 
here's a cigarette, thanks. Boy number three, again. Four years later, he calls me up out of the blue and asks me if I want to go get a drink with him. I've just graduated from college and I'm working at the restaurant where I worked before I went to college. He's been fired from his job as a janitor at the funeral parlor. Why did they fire you, I ask. My boss made this action at me, just joking like he was going to shoot me, you know, with his arms. I told him, I didn't think that was very funny. It really scared me. You know, you just shouldn't joke about things like that. He thought I was overreacting, so he fired me. Are you still painting? No, but he still lives with his strange, disapproving parents in a cul-de-sac near the lake. It's dark when I pull up. When my headlights hit the front bay window, he comes out pulling a thin, tan jacket up over his gray T-shirt. He jumps into the passenger seat and closes the door. Pull around the corner here, he says, pointing around the corner of his house towards the backyard. He still hasn't looked me in the eyes. I size him up. He's gained what looks like a lot of water weight. His hair is greasy. Just pull around the corner here. I needed to get my beer. I thought that's what we're doing. We're going to get a drink. I don't have any money. I have some beer hiding around the corner here behind the shed. He points and makes a whirly motion with his index finger. Why don't I just buy you a drink? I have all this beer already. How many beers do you want to buy me? He keeps pointing. I feel weird now, sitting in the driveway with my lights on and motor running. I pull slowly out of the driveway. I really don't care, I say. Besides, where are you going to drink them? In the car? He ignores me and keeps pointing to the backyard. I'll just run around and get them. You drive the car away from the block and then stop, and I can run back and get them so they don't see. Why are you hiding beer outside? My parents don't like me drinking. I'm driving my car very slow now. Why not? I, it makes the medication I'm taking stop working. <laughs> He's looking out through the dark window at the backyard. His nose is so close to the glass it's almost touching. What medication are you on? Antipsychotics. His breath fogs up the window. Oh, just go around the corner here. He still hasn't said hi or looked me in the eye. He keeps staring out the window. Boy number four. I'm still limping around with my stress fractures. He calls me and asks me if I want to meet him at the Pals downtown for coffee. I limp to the bus station and make it all the way downtown. I'm grouchy and in pain. I wait for 20 minutes in the crowded coffee shop, and when he shows up, he sits down and shoves his chair sideways, slightly away from me. He looks over my shoulder and sits with his body facing halfway away from me. We exchange small talk until he starts to tell me about the bug that flew into his ear and died. He was on his bike, and it flew into his ear. His immediate reaction was to slap the side of his face. This action killed the bug inside his ear, and he'd recently had to go to the doctor to have it removed. Do you want to see it, he asks. Of course. He pulls a piece of tissue out of the breast pocket of his jean jacket and carefully unfolds it. I examine the remains. It's hard to tell exactly what species of bug it is, as smashed as it is. I think it means something that this happened, he says, placing the bug carefully back into his pocket with a nod. What do you mean? That my first reaction was to kill the bug. I think it means I should stop eating meat again. You think you killed the bug because you eat meat now? It was my first instinct to kill the bug. It flew into your ear while you were biking. But I don't think I would have done that had I still been a vegetarian. Look, I say, when I pour out my little fish tank to clean it out, my goldfish's first instinct is to swim against the current, even though what I'm doing is for his benefit. We can't help our instincts. He just stares at me. Conversation is over. He asks me if I want to go see Jackass the movie. No, I don't want to go see that movie. He walks and I limp down to the Mexican restaurant attached to the back of the strip club. He orders a burrito and I order a beer. If I remember correctly, he talks about his new cat for the rest of our time together. And then I leave. Boy number five. I'm lying in bed with an engineer. Last night over a beer, he told me about his job. My job involves making curves and roads so that everyone's comfortable. Like if someone is driving along a bridge I've built, they won't get that roller coaster effect. Their stomach won't flip-flop. I make the curve as steep as possible without that happening so people can drive as fast as possible without feeling sick. If people feel sick, it doesn't mean their speed is unsafe per se, but it means that they'll immediately slow down, which will impede the steady flow of traffic. Your job is to make the road as dangerous as possible? Yes, he says, basically. Grover. 
You're listening to Livewire Radio. If listening to Livewire, the podcast, is more your style, you can download us at livewireradio.org or subscribe on iTunes. Unless you've already done that, and that's how you're listening to us right now. In that case, thank you. Oh, yeah. It's time once again for one of Livewire's favorite game shows, Romance Novel Title... Or Courtney's Erotic Fantasy. Seriously, Sean? You shouldn't have left your diary just laying around. So, tonight we have... I'm sorry, introduce yourself to the, the people here. Uh, Martin Reed. We have Martin Reed. Uh, tell us about yourself, Martin Reed. Uh, Fascinating. Okay, we're going to get right to it, guys. Here's the deal. I'm going to read a title, and all he has to do is tell me whether the title is a real, actual romance novel... Or an erotic fantasy that Courtney made the mistake of writing down somewhere. <laughs> Sound good? Okay. It's all up to you. Audience, can he do it? <laughs> I think he can too. And if he gets more than half the answers right, he'll win a fabulous prize. Trisha, tell him what he's going to win. Yes, Sean. Martin will win an improved sense of self and this copy of The Husband Hunt by Lindsay Sands. Wow. And people say we're a nonprofit. All right, Martin, are you ready to play? Here we go. Number one, sex lies and leprechauns. Real. Oh, good thing you reconsidered. It is real and it is amazing. Number two, pick up at the robot club, the Fembot Chronicles. Also real. Chronicles are hot this time of year. <laughs> Love and the Loathsome Leopard. <laughs> um, real. It is real. Alliteration is romantic. <laughs> Number five, the broken promise of Captain Christopher Dawson. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, real It is fake But it is a particularly saucy tale I enjoyed reading it Number six The centrally attentive pharmacist Fake It is fake A that good actually... job gets you about 90% of the way with Courtney no, I just, I didn't have health insurance for a really long time, so I had all these pharmacist fantasies. Number seven, a duke deceived. Real. Real, and chapter eight was out of this world. Number nine, the drummer who stayed. Um, fake. It is fake. It comes after nine drummers left. Next one, His Majesty, M.D. Real. Absolutely. It's, someone knows their romance novels. Number 10, Dr. Daddy. Um, I hope that's fake. It is 100% real. Number 11, The Surprisingly Gentle Pirate. Fake. Correct. Instead of ripping her bodice, he just asked her to remove it. The Marine and the Debutante. Mm, yes, real. Wow. Someone's been reading. <laughs> and lastly, Prince Charming in Fleece. Yeah, real. That was one of Courtney's local dreams. <laughs> Trisha, how many did he get right? Eleven. Eleven. Right. What a powerhouse. Unbelievable. Give it up. That is all the time we have for tonight. Thank you, Martin, for playing Actual Romance Novel or Courtney's Erotic Fantasy. Join us next time when we play Actual Line from the Twilight Book or Result of Giving Hamsters Tiny Keyboards. Good night. with Sean McGrath and Trisha Ferguson with David Ian on sound effects. Things are going well for our next guest. 
Last year, his screenplay, Terry, was made into a film with John C. Riley, and this month, he'll be moving with his family to France for a three-month literary residency. All that, and his second novel, The Sisters Brothers, was shortlisted for the prestigious Man Booker Prize. Violent and surprisingly funny, the book follows mid-19th century hired assassins, Eli and Charlie's sisters, as they travel through Oregon and California to hunt down their prey, while Eli starts to question his chosen profession. Please welcome Patrick DeWitt to Livewire. Welcome to the show, Patrick. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to just start off briefly by talking about your background. I know you didn't study writing formally, and but you've also said that you knew early on that you would eventually give writing a try. How did you know that? Uh, I started reading a lot when I was a young boy, and uh, my father gave me a lot of books to read, and um, he did me the service of giving me adult books, even though I was not an adult myself, so... I was reading beatnik, beatnik books and, um, you know, Jack Kerouac and stuff like that when I was 12 and 13. Wow. And, um, what did you think of Kerouac? I mean, was, was there stuff in Kerouac that you didn't understand at that point? There was a lot of stuff that I did not understand, but it was very exciting, and I was looking forward to it all, you know. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, did you read Bukowski back then as well? Yeah, there was a lot of that in the house, and then... Um, you know, Richard Brodigan and Charles Portis and Hubert Selby and people like that. And, and, when you, and you educated yourself, really, when you decided that you wanted to be a writer, right? I guess so. I mean, I think everyone ultimately educates themselves, whether they go to college or not. But I knew from about 17 that I was going, that I wanted to write novels. And so it was just a question of, you know, working it out in terms of, you know, sitting in front of a typewriter or uh, what became a computer and then um, reading a lot, you know, spending a lot of time in the library and stuff like that. So when you were reading those books, were you looking at the? Were you trying to kind of figure out the structure of the stories, or was it more of the style that you were looking for? I remember perking my ears up when something would move me, when I felt, um, you know, uncomfortable, or if I felt, um, you know, sad, or if I felt happy, or if I laughed, or. Any sort of an emotion at all, I remember at a certain point I thought, well, I should probably pay attention to why this is making me feel that way. Mm-hmm. And um, not necessarily taking notes, just sort of maybe it would be a section that I would reread and then hopefully, you know, assimilate in some way. Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned uncomfortable because um, I, I watched Terry, the, the, the film that, that you yeah. wrote the screenplay for, and also reading this book, and you have an unbelievable skill for creating... Th- Making you uncomfortable? <laughs> well... That's what um, you're going to say, right? Well, no, it's, it's tension. It's this tension yeah. that actually... I mean, I, I found myself periodically saying, uh-oh, out loud as I was reading the book. What, what is that? What is that skill? Mm, I don't know. Um, it's funny, with Terry, um, I watched it all the way through one time at the first festival it was at. And then since then, I've been to a few other festivals and I was you know, supposed to watch it, but you don't really have to watch it if you don't want to. And so you come in at the end, and um, the last 15 minutes of that movie to me are really harrowing and horrible. And I found that I was really kind of revolted by it. And not because I think it's bad, but um, when I sit down and I watch a film or if I sit down and read a book and I'm made um, uncomfortable or, or, or I feel awkward, I feel animosity and hostility towards the creator and because I feel that way all the time in my regular life, and I don't want to feel that way... When you watch art. ...in my leisure time. And so, so that, you, I, that I'm doing that to all you people, I don't know why I'm doing that, and I apologize. I'm really sorry. <laughs> well, when you, did you feel that way toward yourself? Were you mad at yourself because you'd made yourself... I mean, adolescence was a mess for me, and, 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 and um, you know, young adulthood was a mess for me, as it was for really all my friends. Yeah, it was about a really awkward, you know, outcast kid. Yeah, I mean, no, I mean, and, and, and I had lots of friends, and, like, high school was fine for me. I had friends and girlfriends and stuff like that, and it was fine, but just looking back, you realize, I mean, you're so full of energy at that period of your life, and... Um, there's no rest, really, you know? You never really rest, and, and you think you know everything, which is, I yeah. think, the big, 
you know, mistake of that entire period, the big black spot in that entire period of, of everyone's life is that you think you're really smart and you have no <laughs> idea that you're actually really, really stupid. You know? Right, at that age, absolutely. And maybe that's just helps the whole process because if you knew how dumb you were, then you'd probably, we would all die, you know, yeah. kill ourselves. <laughs> so anyway, but I look back on that period of time and I recognize it as a very, you know, serious, um, scary time, you know, yeah. really, like s- sincerely uh, frightening period of, of time for, for most anyone, you know, even no matter where you're at, you know, on the social spectrum of uh, young adulthood, it's, um, you know, it's, it can be harsh. Well, overall, there were, there were definitely moments that, that were hard to watch in the film, but overall, reading your book is, is wonderful, watching the movie, of, you know, overall, it feels good, right? And, and well, that's what, is that yeah. your goal? Well, I, I, I don't have one goal in mind, but if I watch a movie, Todd Solondz is a good example, where I feel like the director or whoever it is, the writer, has a really low opinion of humanity, I tend to bristle against that. Yeah. And that doesn't... I'm not looking for that, you know. Yeah. If anything, I want the far opposite of that. And um, so even though there are moments in in my work where um, things are awkward and uncomfortable and maybe ugly sometimes, I consider myself optimistic and and, and, um, I would hope that that is reflected in my work, you know. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Live Wire Radio, and we're talking with author Patrick DeWitt. Um, I, I, and we're talking about the, the, the Sisters Brothers. And uh, when you talk about uh, still having hope, you know, still being hopeful, you clearly really care about uh, the character of Eli in this book. Um, he is, he's one of the brothers, and he's the, he's the narrator of the book. And I wonder if you can read a little bit, because I feel like his voice is so distinct, and I'd love for people to be able to hear him a little bit. Yeah, I'd be glad to. Um, I'll just read the first two pages. It's quite short. Uh, And this is just, there's nothing really to set up. This is uh, the first two pages of the book. The section is called Trouble with the Horses. And here we go. I was sitting outside the Commodore's mansion, waiting for my brother Charlie to come out with news of the job. It was threatening to snow, and I was cold. And for want of something to do, I studied Charlie's new horse, Nimble. My new horse was called Tub. We did not believe in naming horses, but they were given to us as a partial payment for the last job, with the names intact, so that was that. Our unnamed previous horses had been immolated, so it was not as though we did not need these new ones, but I felt we should have been given money to purchase horses of our own choosing, horses without histories and habits, and names that they expected to be addressed by. I was very fond of my previous horse, and lately had been experiencing visions while I slept of his death, his kicking, burning legs, his hot, popping eyeballs. He could cover 60 miles in a day like a gust of wind, and I never laid a hand on him except to stroke him or clean him, and I tried not to think of him burning up in that barn But if the vision arrived uninvited, how was I to guard against it? Tub was a healthy enough animal, but would have been better suited to some other, less ambitious owner. He was portly and low-backed, and could not travel more than 50 miles in a day. I was often forced to whip him, which some men do not mind doing, and which, in fact, some men enjoy doing, but which I did not like to do, and afterwards he, Tub, believed me cruel, and thought to himself, sad life, sad life. I felt a weight of eyes on me and looked away from Nimble. Charlie was gazing down from the upper story window, holding up five fingers. I did not respond, and he distorted his face to make me smile. When I did not smile, his expression fell slack, and he moved backward out of view. He had seen me watching his horse, I knew. The morning before, I had suggested we sell Tub and go halves on a new horse, and he had agreed this was fair, but then later, over lunch, he had said we should put it off until the new job was completed, which did not make sense to me, because the problem with Tub was that he would impede the job, so would it not be best to replace him prior to? Charlie had a slick of food grease in his mustache, and he said, after the job is best, Eli. He had no complaints with Nimble, 
who was as good or better than his previous horse, unnamed. But then he had had first pick of the two while I lay in bed, recovering from a leg wound received on the job. I did not like Tub, but my brother was satisfied with Nimble. This was the trouble with the horses. Thank you. That's Eli. So this, it it reminded me a little bit of um, the film In Bruges. How do you make people love assassins? I think you just have to show them not assassinating people. (laughs) And, um, you know, filling out the rest of their life. If you only show a killer killing, then of course we're not going to be able to root for them. But, um, you know, if you show them shopping or, Mm -hmm. you know, eating or, you know having insomnia or anything like that, you know, then you can relate to him and then he becomes a human being. Yeah. You know. And uh, yeah, they're definitely human beings in this one. Well, it's been a pleasure having you. Um, Thanks so much for joining us and we hope that we'll see you when you come back from France with a new book. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Patrick DeWitt. The book is The Sisters Brothers. If you've just joined us, you're tuned in to Livewire Radio, and thanks for listening. And no, you're not experiencing deja vu. It's just summer, and our cast and crew are all oiled up by the pool, so this is a rebroadcast of the show. If you're in the Portland area, our live tapings start again on Saturday, September 8th at the Alberta Rose Theater. You can find more information on those shows and how to help sustain Livewire's future at livewireradio.org. We'll be right back. Wow, this is it. First night in the new house. Oh, I can't believe we're homeowners. I'm a little freaked out. Does this mean we're grown-ups? No, it means we're still completely immature. We just owe the bank $367,000 now. Oh, gross. Oh, oh. by the way, did you lock the back door? Oh, and the side door and the... Uh, what are we calling that other one? The front side door? Yeah, yeah. I locked it and everything else, okay? We're secure. Mm, my hero. I'm so happy. <sighs> Me too. You know, it's like I've been saying... Oh, did you hear that? Hear what? Well, that. What is it? It sounds like it's in the attic. Uh, it's just the house settling. You know, people say that, and I don't really know what it means. It means that the house is... Well, a home's foundation is like... You know when you squat down and you feel your knees Hey, you have no idea what you're talking about, do you? No, not so much. Okay, what the hell is that? It's just the wind blowing through the attic. It sounds like a metal gear dipped in fat. No, it sounds like a broken-down animatronic clown covered in wet socks. Oh, okay, well, that's not terrifying. It sounds like it's downstairs. What the hell is that? It sounds like if your Aunt Vern was part machine and constantly passed gas. Well, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's what she actually is. Okay, so. stop joking, Ned. I'm getting scared. Okay, I'm sorry. It's just new house sounds, all right? Our minds are getting carried away, like right now. Hang on. Yes? Yeah, now it sounds like a, like a team of mice is puddling soaked blanket. They're, they're crazing playing tiny kazoos filled with meat. No. 
it, it, it's more like the second Marshall Tucker Band album being played in slow motion inside a defective washing machine. No, 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 it's more like a, a carcass made of root beer and glockenspiel parts covered in loose skin is being dragged up a hill made of feet. What? Think about it. Okay, it's getting closer. I mean, it sounds like it's right outside our bedroom. There's a perfectly logical explanation for this. Okay, I'm gonna go take a look. Oh boy, honey, you're not gonna believe this. Is it your Aunt Vern? Close, it's David Ian. Who? The sound effects guy from Livewire. You mean David Ian, master of sound? Oh. Hey guys. Hey, hey, what was that last sound you were making? Oh, you mean the second Marshall Tucker Band album being played in slow motion inside a defective washing machine? I in your face, Ned. All right, whatever. It was a lucky guess. Say, um, David Ian, yeah. would you do us a solid and keep it down a little? Oh. It's our first night in the new place. Oh, uh, no problem. Hey, good night, you guys. Oh, and congrats on the new house. Oh, uh, thanks. thanks. Yeah. <clears throat> well, he seems like a nice guy. Yeah, he does. Um, you'll call the exterminator in the morning, right? First thing. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, Michael Hurley. Kiss me once, oh, kiss me twice. Give me a taste of
Michael Hurley. And now, as promised, to sum it all up for us with a poem that he just finished writing a couple minutes ago, please welcome Scott Poole. What I Learned Tonight by Scott Poole. I learned tonight that I might have to ask permission from our government to carry a purse. <laughs> Not that I especially want to carry one, even though they're so darn handy and come in such an incredible variety. It's just if the government wants me to fill out endless forms and testify before Congress in order to have the right to carry one, then I want a purse. They don't have 400 different versions of computer bags. There must be something I'm missing. I already have a mental image of my purse. It has a picture of Bukowski, Richard Brodigan on it, and a picture of a macrame owl hanging from my right armpit hair on it. In it, I would carry my bullets, my gun, a two-foot-long summer sausage, and a bobblehead of Rush Limbaugh eternally kissing his own butt, and other stuff, you know, like my keys. I imagine with my purse, I would look like an especially sensitive pirate, or the muscle-bound millionaire doctor likes to drag 30 pounds of gifts with him at all times to give to the sad children of single mothers. I could carry my lunch in there. My purse would be full of perch from Lake Champlain, barbecue, unfinished dishes, and happy, happy faces like a Michael Hurley song. I also learned tonight that if you're walking down the street on a sunny day, you might just be attacked randomly by a troop of Girl Scouts and stripped of all your possessions, left fat and stuffed full of get your laws off my snickerdoodles, and why are you so focused on whether we're thin mints? Did you know the GS were so militant? And would that be the worst fate, really, if Girl Scouts ruled the world? Would we all have to eat cookies every day, incorporate a craft into our daily routines? Would you have to hide beer behind the shed if it kept your antipsychotic medication from working? Would you have to start treating people nicely and mean it? Or when offered the 12th free freshly baked brownie that day from a nice person in a khaki dress, would you just say thank you, be grateful, and glad that you didn't have to testify before the damn Congress to get it? Thank you. Scott Poole, everybody. That's our show for tonight. Thank you so much for listening. to guests tonight, Martha Grover, Patrick DeWitt, and Michael Hurley. The Mutton Chops are Ralph Huntley, Jim Brunberg, and Paul Brainerd, now featuring their new record of 99 songs of 30 seconds or less at mchops.com. Tonight's show is made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Dave's Killer Bread, and Burgerville, introducing Burgerville Radio, featuring music from Northwest musicians in all their restaurants. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation, and listeners like you find people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is produced by Courtney Hommeister and Jim Brunberg. The faces for Radio Theater are writers Sean McGrath and Courtney Hommeister, performers Andrew Harris and Trisha Ferguson, with sound effects by David Ian. Additional show writers are Jason Rouse and house poet Scott Poole. Faces for Radio Theater is directed by Jason Rouse. Our technical director is Jonathan Newsom, with house sound by Scott McLeod. Stage management by Graham Nystrom. Thank you to Rose City Sound. Show theme by Courtney Vondrele and Ralph Huntley. Our show photographer is Jenny Baker. Livewire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. For more information about Livewire or to subscribe to our podcast, visit livewireradio.org. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review 
Feel free to say really nice things about us. And uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, Reviews help other people hear about the show. And then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, Thank you so much. If you've left a review and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.